Welcome to The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want the truth about having a healthy, happy, strong body. Remember, your body was meant to move. Now here's your host, Stephen Sashen. So wouldn't it be great to have a shoe that just does all the work for you? I mean, you don't even have to barely move your legs and the shoe just takes care of everything. Well, that shoe exists or does it? We're going to be talking about that and many other things on today's episode of the Movement Movement Podcast, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting with the feet first because those things are your foundation. We're going to debunk the mythology, the propaganda, sometimes the lies that you've been told about what it takes to dance, to walk, to hike, to run, to do CrossFit or yoga or whatever it is you like to do enjoyably, efficiently, and uh, we'll have more fun is, of course, the bottom line. I'm Stephen Sashin, your host, as you probably know. And if you don't know what we're doing here, it's really simple. We're trying to make natural movement the obvious, better, healthy choice the way natural food currently is. We call it the movement movement because you are part of the movement, the grassroots thing that's going to help make this happen. If you want to find out all the other episodes, just go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. That's where you'll also find places you can engage with this content on Spotify and iTunes and YouTube and Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, like, share, review, thumbs up if you're on uh, the appropriate places and hit the bell button if you're on YouTube. In short, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe and let's jump in. Jay DeSherry, welcome. I'm, I want to start by just letting you do your own intro because if I say things, it gets boring. So who the hell are you? What are you doing here? Uh, good morning, Steve. My name's Jay. Uh, yeah, I'm a PT. I've been a PT for oh, a long time, probably 18 years. And yeah, 18 years. And so I, I'm here today, yeah, to have a little chat, talk about how to optimize our bodies. You are being super, super modest. You've done things like written books. Would you please plug your damn books? Sure. Yeah, so I wrote two books. I wrote a book called Anatomy for Runners, and I wrote a book called Runner Rewired. Those books serve as very interesting spaces. And Anatomy for Runners was written out of the goal to really educate people as to what running really is. My, my career has been interesting. I, I've been a PT for years, but I ran a gate research lab at University of Virginia for a while. And one of the things that we did at UVA was to use our gate research lab for research. So people always talk about things like force plates and you know, motion capture systems. And I've been using force plates for longer than almost anyone else. I had the second instrumented treadmill in the entire world. And oh, we wow. had number one was at yeah, our, our research base in Natick, Massachusetts for the army. And ours has been in existence and alive and kicking for, you know, over a decade, right? So those allow us to look at things in a very high resolution space. And you can see not just one stride, but you can see multiple strides over and over again. And that starts to become interesting, right? Because imagine if you have a patient or an athlete come in and I can talk to them, right? I can do a clinical exam on them, but I also have clinical data on each and every, I mean, excuse me, uh, lab data on every athlete. And would it be cool if you could call your own bluff and say, hey, when I see you for an evaluation, here's where your baseline is. We're going to do some things. Can I make you objectively better, right? Can I actually decrease tissue stress? Can I do things to improve running economy? Can I do things to improve durability? You know, when you talk about possible changes, can I do that? When we talk about you know, the foot later, right? Can I actually improve the torque within your foot, right? So it's been a very interesting career to do that. And so I still do that now. I'm in Bend, Oregon now. I have another lab and I still do some work with the lab at EVA. And uh, we use research work for sure, but we also use this for individual performance analysis. So the goal of my books has been sort of to, to try and help and educate and inform athletes. So Anatomy for Runners was written for a very interesting space. It's not written for the biomechanical engineer. It's not written just for a clinician. It's not written just for a coach. It's written for this gray area of people who really want to understand how you know running works and what stresses the running places on your body. It's written with a bunch of analogies in kind of a laid back way, but it's trying to teach people if you want the answer, if you want beyond everyone must run 180 and everyone must contact this way and everyone must do this, we get into here's what that does and here's why each one of those may have an advantage or disadvantage. And then Here's how you find out how it applies to you. First of all, for anyone, including me, to think that we're going to be able to cover everything we want to cover in whatever amount of time that we have right now, that's ridiculous. Yeah. There's a lot that we're going to talk about. And we've been having yeah. this conversation for a while. You and yeah. I have been part of an email thread with a handful of the people that I refer to as the smartest people in the world uh, when it comes to movement. I mean, for, geez, you know, 10 years now. So, but this is the first time we've done this. So this will be fun. So I'm going to jump into all those things. But first two things. One is we're going to go back to what I teased at the beginning. But before we even do that, since it is the Movement Movement podcast, um, is there any movement-y thing that you want to share with people for any reason that you can possibly think of? 
Yeah. So I would say, uh, number one, you know, we're going to talk today about, you know, is there a perfect shoe? And, and I, I would like to put the argument out there, is there a perfect foot? Okay. And, and, not, and not just a perfect foot type, right? And, you know, those of you listening, some of you may have high mobile arches and some have low stiff arches and some have somewhere in the middle. And I've always told athletes, you know, our research has shown, don't worry about the foot type you have. Okay. You can optimize any foot type that you've got. And that comes from having control over your mobility, right? I once had a runner come in for a research study. On, this is one of those like seminal, everybody has those seminal moments that have shaped their entire thought process. And, uh, and this kid came in the room and he was a UVA runner and we were doing a, a, sh- a study on running economy. And he came in, he took off a shoe and he took off a shoe and his navicular, the inside of his arch was on the floor. It was right. a weight bearing bone. This is a guy who, you know, you show up for the army, you know, 30 years ago, they would have said, oh, you can't, you know, you're out of here. You know, you show up in the cross country now, right? Coaches are like, oh, you should ride a bike and become a cyclist because your foot can't tolerate running. The guy ran a 1432 5K, never had one injury in his life, okay? So he had a more mobile foot than the average bear, but he had excellent control of his more than normal mobility, right? So I got I to interrupt and tell you, my kind of come to Jesus moment was very similar, but I was the patient in this case. So I was an all-American gymnast way back when, when I was in high school. I'm 15 years old. I go see this guy who was essentially the father of sports medicine. He wrote the first book called Sports Medicine. And he says to me, he looks at my foot, which was crazily flat, not quite that bad, but not too far off. And he said, well, you know, you, you, uh, you can't be a gymnast. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm one of the top three or four tumblers in the world you're a moron. And, uh, that was, you know, I just walked out like stunned. How do you not know that this has nothing to do with just, you know, the fundamental anatomy? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and and so I'd say, yeah, let's break that mindset. Right. So again, whether you've got a more collapsed foot, improve the control of your collapsed foot. If you've got a higher arch, that's fine too. Right. So, you know, and I think let's get away from this idea that I've got this foot and that's what I'm kind of stuck with and like, oh, woe is me. What do I do? You know, you can actually improve the the foot control, right? So you spend time, you know, improving your shoulder health in the gym. You spend time working on core stability at home before you run. You spend time working on your hip mechanics for better propulsion, right? Guess what? You should do the same thing for your feet, right? So your your challenge is going to be to, and we'll talk about these today, Steve, you know, find a way to kind of get the muscle inside your feet to work. And that's going to improve that your contact points to the ground. Look, it just occurs to me that one of the reasons that people have this thought is because for the last 50 years, shoe and orthotic companies have been telling you that you have this problem, that this is a fundamental problem you have, and we have the solution. And of course, you know, you and I both know there is no evidence whatsoever for their quote unquote solution. But it strikes me that this is part of this fundamental issue that we're trying to unwind, which is this notion that you're broken and here's this magic solution. And obviously, we think something very, very different. But I mean, this is this thought is so ingrained. What it's going to take to unwind that, to pull those threads apart, to get people back to this idea that you're starting to share. And of course, you know, the problem gets even worse because once people bought into that idea and they're wearing big, thick, stiff shoes, everything gets weaker, and so the problem just exacerbates. And you know, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, it, it goes back to the, the marketing machine, right? I mean, right. I always laugh. You know, when I was back in school, the foot biomechanics you know, content I learned was basically from the shoe companies, because guess what? That's all we had, right? We didn't have the tools that we have today. It's funny. It's like, you think about scale, like this is 2019, right? In 2001, like you had these research labs and they, once in a while they were turned on by, you know, an engineer who didn't understand the body at all. Right. And they were talking in ones and zeros and bits and and things and clinicians were like, this looks really cool. I don't know what to do with it, right? And right. so then you have people doing research trying to you know, say, hey, look, I believe this is important. Well, how do you measure it? Well, I'm not really sure. Let's figure something weird out, but I don't understand the equipment we have, right? So things have evolved at a really rapid pace. And I mentioned before, it's like people are still trying to understand you know, how something works. And like, I've been using this stuff for you know, 18 years, been having concrete data in the lab. And again, not just looking at it for research purposes. I always tell people research, you know, helps us understand fundamentals. It doesn't tell you how to treat your patients, right? right? So you have to take that information, know how to process it, know how to figure out if-then statements on where to go and how to use and apply things. And, you know, what we've seen play out over the past few years is that, you know, again, a shoe is not going to stabilize your body, okay? You know, you as a human are relatively heavy compared to an 8 to 13-ounce shoe, okay? Do you really think that, quote, medial post is going to stop your foot from moving? Right. It doesn't. Okay. Well, even more, and, even more, the foam breaks down so quickly that even if it does help when you're in the running shoe store, which by the way, it probably doesn't, you know, a hundred miles in it's dead. 
I posted something. I was in the airport a couple of weeks ago, and there's a guy walking in front of me, and you know he's just falling off the inside edges of his shoes. I mean, they had totally collapsed. The foam is just compressed completely, and he's like massively pronated because of that. Just the shoe is putting him in, in a bad biomechanical position. I whipped out my phone and just took a video of this. Um, interestingly, we put it on Facebook, and everyone's commenting like, "Oh my God, this is horrible. Shoes suck." We put it on Instagram, and people were commenting, "You're body shaming." It's like, no, we're shoe shaming. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's yeah, awesome. great anyway so back to back to a movement that you might want to share with humans yeah i'm going to share humans so i would say this let's talk about real simple right so when you think about your arch okay your arch is a dynamically controlled structure right it's not going to stay in one position and i want to help you learn to control your arch so do me a favor i want you to stand up right and this is easy to understanding because that way you're not going to try and get well, i'm actually what i'm, I'm going to do is i'm going to stand up yep Okay. So what you're not going to get uh, trying to move your toes. What I want you to do is I want you to think about what we call the tripod of the foot. And people always think the tripod of the foot is the end of the big toe, the outside of the ball of the foot, and the heel. And I want to get away from that mindset, right? And here's why. Your heel, all the motion in your rear foot is entirely dependent on what your forefoot does to steer it because all those muscles that control your rear foot mechanics anchor actually up at the forefoot, not the rear foot. Okay, so your tripod in your mind is now going to be the outside ball of the foot the inside ball of the foot, and the end of the big toe. So it's a four-foot tripod, not a rear-foot tripod. Wait, oh, okay? do do, give me those, give me yep. those ones again. So outside ball of the foot, yep. inside ball of the foot, yep. end of the big toe. Got it. Okay. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. So that's where all your control comes from, right? Yep. Not your rear foot. So what I want you to do is I want you to take your feet, right? And pronation means rolling in. Yep. supination means rolling out. Those are both good natural movements. One's not worse than the other. But let's have people learn to be able to pronate their foot and keep their big toe on the ground, which is pretty easy. And now what I want you to do, I want you to screw your arches up and outward and still keep contact under the ball of the big toe. Oh, nice. Okay? Because most people, again, want to roll outward and lose Thank contact you. of the first metatarsal base, right? Yep. I want to keep that down. And so here's what you're going to do. I want you to try this back and forth. And some of you are going, okay, wait, this is weird, but I get it. And some of you are like, I don't get it. Do me a favor. Find a piece of TheraBand somewhere in your house, okay, and cut off like a little four to six inch section. I want you to do me a favor. Put it underneath the ball of the foot and the big toe on your right foot, and then pull it taut, just like with a few pounds of pressure, and then put your left foot on there again. And so now what you've got is a contact point of needing to drive down on the yep. base of the big toe. Yep. And now just try and do that same little arch screw, okay, up and down, right? And if you're the kind of person who tends to roll out and you lose contact to the ball of the foot, we need to talk, okay? Because we have to train you how to actually drive that ball of foot down. You should be nice. able to stand quietly with one, both weight on each foot, right? And be able to supinate and pronate your foot under control. Because guess what? Yeah, yeah. Your foot has to do that when you run. One of the things we need to do is increase the neuromuscular link between our brain and teach you how to steer your foot. I'm doing something on the other end of this to play with it, which is I'm also working on doing this by how I contract my glutes. Yep. Yeah. So, okay, let's start this. So this is something I do with people. And so those of you who have a foam roller, there's actually an addition that's drill you can do. Take your foam roller and stick it between your shins, okay? And now what this does is, I call this drill the foam roller drill, okay? But what you do is you're going to squeeze the foam roll, okay? Mm -hmm. And squeezing the foam roll together between your shins helps you increase contact of the ball of foot, right? Yep. And yep. so what I want you to do is I want you to take your fingers and I want to put your fingers on your butt, okay? <laughs> and so we're keeping our feet pressed to the ground. So your arches should feel very much engaged right now. Your foam roller squeeze to keep that contact. I want you to take your fingers and your glute, tighten your butt cheeks, and I want you to screw your hips out yep. and in five times from your hips, okay? So in this position right now, your glutes are going to be the driver and your foot's the passenger. So do that five reps. And after five reps, what I want you to do is keep the contact of the foam roller, relax your glutes, and now use your, your foot. Feet. So I want your foot to be the driver. Nice. And I want your glute to be the passenger. And I want you to do that five times, right? And I want to go back and forth, five times screwing it out from the hip, five times screwing it out from the foot. Because guess what? You don't just treat feet. We don't just treat hips. We treat people, right? And you have to connect what we call in the biomechanics world, the free moment, this line of torsional stress that moves throughout the entire body. And you have to make sure we learn quality control there. I have pictures of this in my book, Running Rewired. 
um, if those of you who need a visual. But well, yeah. So, and let me just so say, cool. having just done this in real time, if you haven't done this, do it. Because right now my arches are like totally firing. Yeah. Super, super fun. Yeah. So it's, it's like, again, and some of you are like, wow, I never did that before. And again, like some of you who've done some exercise for your core, right? Like why aren't you doing something for your foot, right? So I'm having a conversation. It's a preliminary conversation, but my hopes are really, really high with a national fitness chain. And I said, I want to put something together with you, obviously using our shoes, but that's not the important point. The important part is that you're doing all this stuff where people's feet are just going to sleep. And if you want people to have a happy, healthy body for their life, you need to do exactly what you're talking about. You need to be doing something for your feet. We need a foot strengthening program. And obviously we know from Sarah Ridge's research that just walking in a minimalist shoe can do some, does a lot for foot strengthening, but to have a real program like what you're describing just with this one exercise and, and obviously many more is it's so important in ways that people can't even imagine. And I have this fantasy that, I, and when I mentioned it to, to this company yesterday, they said that they had already been kind of trying to think about what to do in the future to really be about health and not just getting people into their gym and being yet another fad that people pick up and throw down at some point. And I have my fingers crossed that, you know, they're going to, they're going to do it. In fact, the last thing that I mentioned in my email to them was if you're ready to put together an actual program to integrate into what you were doing, I know the people. And of course, you're, you know, you're one of the people that I'm thinking about. Yeah. I mean, it's just people like to have things gamified and fun. Yeah, we can do that. Right. I mean, we can give you mm -hmm. a challenge. And then, so, you know, the challenge becomes a test, right? Can, can we do things that really get people to queue in and find out what's my foot supposed to do? Can I learn better control? And then how does that really translate in sport, right? I mean, you have to learn, you learn movement. Well, and the translation is, of course, the important part. And even if people just did something like what you just walked them through before they started whatever activity they're doing, it makes such a huge difference. Yeah, and, and it, it teaches everything, right? I mean, it's like it cracks me up. Most people talk about, oh, when you're doing squats, you want to you know, screw the big toe and screw the hip out. People are like, okay, I'll just stand the outside of my foot. That doesn't work, right? Like, right. so these things are so fundamental. If you're doing any single leg type lift, I mean, again, I mentioned before that concept of people think tripod is and the big toe outside of foot and heel, right? So what you do is you allow a lot of passive things to go in that position, right? And so right. your foot's basically just kind of stuck following, right? Versus the foot that's actively engaged when you learn how to drive the arch up. So if you're doing any single leg work with that mindset, the old mindset, it's really hard to do it properly, right? I always tell people, you know, your foot needs to be proactive, right? So let's take a, a dorky thing here for a second. When you look at the core, right, you're, people talk about core strength, core stability. Core strength and stability is kind of a dumb word. And the reason why is research shows that people with a, a good functioning core, the muscles fire. People with poor core control, the muscles still fire. They just fire late, okay? So yeah. when you look at core function, if I move my, uh, up my arm or my leg, muscles in my core fire before my extremities do. So when I move my arms and legs, I don't shift and become unstable, right? right? So a core is just a unit of muscles that work to keep stability around a bunch of joints, right? Well, guess what? You have a foot core, right? So this has been proposed in literature recently a few times by a bunch of people. Some of those, Pat McKee, one of our old grad students at UVA has been pretty kind of forward on this. But you, know, you have a group of muscles that work to stabilize your arch as you move, right? So you right. have to control stability through a given range. If you don't like that analogy, think about a rotator cuff, right? A rotator cuff's job is to keep the ball in the socket. It's not so much a primary mover, it's a stabilizer. Right. Well, you've got a bunch of muscles in your foot, right, that have a job to do, and their job is to stabilize your arch, right? In fact, these muscles are so important, you have pulleys that help increase your leverage. If you look at your knee, you have a kneecap, right, which is a, a pulley for your quad. Well, guess right. what? You actually have two pulleys in your foot, right? They're called your sesamoid bones. And those bones are really there to, again, improve leverage to stabilize the first ray. It all comes down to what are you doing with your first ray control? People need to get better at driving the first ray down for support and stop gripping with little toes. And right. I had a patient yesterday came in who's been having plantar fascia problems for the past year. And she's like, yeah, I'm doing towel curls with a 35-pound kettlebell, right? And I've gotten crazy strong on my gripping strength. I'm like, yeah. That has nothing to do with your task. You know, by doing towel curls and marble pickups, you're literally training your body to lose first ray contact. How does that translate to what you actually do, which is right. run, cut, and jump? And she's like, oh, it doesn't. I'm like, that's the point. You're training a strategy which doesn't carry over in your activity. Let's teach you a strategy that does work, right, to improve your foot health and improve the connection to the ground, improve your durability, and guess what? Those of you who think this stuff is, oh, it's just something else I have to do. I wish these guys would just shut up and stop talking. Okay. There's not a huge body of evidence, but there's research to show 
that folks who work on foot strength can run faster, jump higher, and cut harder. Okay, so uh, and I, and, I go for, and I go for and I go for live longer, healthily. I mean, I'm speaking as a guy yeah. whose dad had no foot strength whatsoever and fell down, you know, tripped, fell down, broke his hip, and was dead two weeks later. And I see more and more elderly people being put in shoes that are three inches thick, and you know, they're shuffling along, and people think it's because they're shuffling. It's like no, 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 no. It's you. You got it totally upside down. Yeah. There's another thing that, that what you're talking about with controlling the foot that I think of another analogy that most people don't know. It's like, think about doing a, a bench press. And most people think of that as just a chest exercise, which it is. But if you want to immediately improve your chest strength, when you grip the bar, try and squeeze the bar like you're trying to squeeze the life out of it. And just using your hand that way, just ha- does it, it's a whole neurological thing that just yeah. makes the entire lift stronger. Same thing with your feet. It makes everything upstream stronger, more efficient, et cetera, which, yeah, it goes to what you're talking about. Run yeah. faster, jump higher, et cetera. Yeah. And, and again, like one, one last thing to put the nail on the coffin here, right? What do climbers do? They spend lots of time on hangboards, working on grip strength, right? Like right. it's part of their sport. Okay. Right. Like a huge part of sport. Okay. What do our running athletes do? Eh, stick my foot in my shoe and go for a run. Right. Right. Okay. Do you, does anybody see a problem with this? Right. Like this is, this is called not preparing. Right. And so right. here's a problem I've got. Then you call me crying, you know, two months before your biggest race, you know, two weeks before the biggest race of the year. Oh, I'm hurt. Well, okay. What have you done? Well, I've done core work. I've done, okay. What have you done to work on this foot control issue? Well, got? I put an orthotic in my shoe. Right. Yeah. Which, which, which saved my foot. Right. So that you great. You added three ounces to your shoe. Nice job. So <laughs> it's the idea that, you know, I think that when we think about what am I doing to prepare for my sport, for my season, mm-hmm. for my, you know, microcycle, mesocycle, whatever, my each day workout, what am I doing for my feet? Nothing. Yeah. Right. What's so funny is that most of the things that we talk about are things that you can do for your feet. And we're gonna, we'll obviously put re- links to your book in the show notes because there's more exercise than what we just did in there. But most of the stuff that we're talking about, you can do while you're brushing your teeth, while yeah. you're doing the dishes, while yeah. you're sitting at your desk. I mean, this is stuff. I remember back in my gymnast days, my coach, he, he said, uh, when you're sitting at your desk in class, point your toes, put your, put your toes underneath, you know, so you've got the top of your toes on the ground because you want to get used to having your toes pointed all the time. And this is something that all of us did. We just lived with our toes pointed because that's what was so important for gymnastics. You can do the same kind of things now for, and it's not just preparing for running. It's again, this is basic fundamental health. I mean, right. people get the idea of your foot is your foundation, but then they have no issue with just not paying any attention to it. It's like, it's a great concept for people, but they're not doing anything about it. Right. And the, and the cool thing is, you know, foot and ankle control stuff, it doesn't require you to spend 45 minutes, two days a week, right? Like you said, right. it's, it's best done, in fact, in small doses throughout the week, right? So, you know, spend five minutes, right? Working on some stuff every day. So whatever, I mean, keep it simple. You know, those of you doing dynamic warm up, part of your dynamic warm up should be with your foot. It's not yes. strengthening, it's more learning how to stabilize. And so, again, when you go run, when you go squat, when you go deadlift, when you do whatever it is you're doing, like, or CrossFit, whatever you're doing in the gym these days, you're thinking about, okay, my foot's part of me. It's not just something else inside this material. Right. Um, the idea of a little bit over a long period of time, it just makes me think of my favorite George Carlin jokes. Scientists have just found that uh, saliva causes cancer, but only when swallowed in small doses over a long period of time. <laughs> I just love that joke. Well, all right. I want to back up to the very beginning. So I teased this this episode with the whole idea that you know the shoe will do everything for you. And obviously, we've already started to kind of pick that apart. But you and I, before we started this, we mentioned this in passing and immediately knew what we were each talking about. Do you want to talk about this whole phenomenon of the shoe doing all the work for you in any particular shoe, in particular that is currently <laughs> being promoted as such? <laughs> Um, sure, Steve. I wonder. If <laughs> I mean, you can just pull one out of a hat if you like. You know, uh, so. when we want to use a shoe, it starts with the letter N. Huh? Interesting. N. Um, I can only think of three that start with the letter N. Do you want a longer one that's two words, or a shorter one that's one word? How about a shorter one that starts with one word? Okay, we don't have to mention it, but I'll say that it rhymes with Mikey. <laughs> Yes, we're talking about the Nike 4% and the soon to come out 5% and all the iterations that, you know, pop up because these are all customized and, and built. So let's just get down to it, okay? You know, this shoe is being tied as something that improves running economy. Well, so I'm going to pause right there. Yep. Most of the research that they're quoting comes out of my neighbor, Roger Crom here at the University of Colorado, who 
He's the one who said everyone who ran in the shoe had a 4% improvement in their VO2 max, 4% improvement in quote running efficiency. There's a debate about whether VO2 max and running efficiency are of course the same thing or have any relationship. And of course, he finally conceded that yes, while that may be true, that doesn't lead to a 4% improvement in performance. And of course, my I, I did a podcast recently, more accurately, I did a rant recently about Kipchoge's sub two hour marathon. I said, well, there was no 4% improvement there. That was a two minute improvement over the course of 26.2 miles in perfect conditions. And that means 4.6 seconds per mile improvement. And you're going to tell me it's the shoes that did that? Yeah. So let's put a few things out there. So that, that, you know, that was a publicity stunt is what you saw, right? And, and yeah. it just, I, I'm just go ahead and get my soapbox here because this drives me nuts. I was a swimmer my entire life, right? And so, you know, Speedo came out with a speed suit. It was instantly deemed illegal. Right. right. It is a it is a performance advantage based upon something you literally purchase. Okay. E-bikes, okay, are illegal in the Tour de France, right? You can't they're, they're unfair. Okay. So <laughs> let, let, let's just put that out there, right? There comes a point in the sand where you have to draw your line. And I know people want to be romanticized with the idea that, oh, we're pushing limits of technology. Yeah. I can make you ride faster in an e-bike, right? You'll swim faster in a speed suit. I, I know it's you're going faster, but again, that is aided. Okay. So Let's just talk a little about the science because I think there, there's some interesting things here I think I want people to understand. When you look at, is there a way you can actually truly change the stiffness characteristics of a runner, right? And that's what this comes down to. When you run, the more elastic you can be, which is, which is storage release of energy. Better, being a better spring. Exactly. A better spring helps you become more efficient. Again, the the more muscular you are, the the more you have to bring active control to the table. Okay. So just a quick little analogy here. The reason why you do a sprint outside, you run 60 meters and you're gassed. Okay. But sprinting, your contact times are extraordinarily short, right? So when you sprint, all that work is muscular, right? You don't have time for storage release of energy if you're contacting the ground, as in Hussein Bolt, with a contact time of 0.08 seconds, right? You have to be driving down before you hit the ground to deliver force to the ground and lift you up and forward, okay? But yet you can run six miles and have a conversation the whole time, okay, easily because it's half muscular work and half elasticity, right? So uh, on average, right? So if you could theorize, how do I make, you know, what's the break point running where I can improve my running economy? It would be trying to do things to improve the elasticity of the system. Okay, so keep that in your head. Let's go back in time, 1987. (laughs) We're back at Harvard and a researcher named Tom McMahon wanted to look at the idea of, is it possible to improve the dynamics of running? Okay. So Tom McMahon's built a track and I'm going to oversimplify this, but let's just think about this real simple. Your track is not made up of a compliant or a squishy surface, but rather imagine pieces of plywood that were stretched widthwise across the track. Well, you don't even have to imagine that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Well, it (laughs) wasn't exactly what it was. But basically, yes. Yeah. So it's basically you know, the, the, these slats of material. And so the idea is that the thickness and density of the material was chosen and selected to be a material that would basically deform and then rebound, okay, given amount, mm-hmm. based upon what? 110, 130 pound runners, okay, with very short contact times. And what he did was you make your regression equation and you tune, okay, literally tune mathematically how much that material gives and rebounds, right? And so the interesting thing, okay, to get past the science is at its opening debut, okay, you had two NCAA records that were broken and like 37 people qualified for NCAAs and like, right. you know, two, two national records are broken, right? Like that doesn't happen at every dual meet, right? So, right. you know, the idea is, can I produce an environment which is more effective at helping runners train that energy? And right? I just want to highlight this because I love that you're saying it and only because I say it too, but not, that's not the only reason. But this is the thing that people don't understand about, about any man-made material is effectively, just by its construction, tuned to a particular mass, to a particular speed, to a particular weight. And odds of you being that mass or that tuning can, staying consistent over time is as close to zero as zero can be. A hundred percent. People never talk about this. They, yeah. So, so if I run that track, right, I'm yeah. heavy. I'm 160, right? That track's oh, not, tu- it's not tuned for me, right? No. So I know it sounds sexy that track was efficient for these, you know, specimens of collegiate perfection, right? But <laughs> no, no offense, yeah. you're probably not that exact person, right? And so- Well, so, my, so, my version like, of this, my, sorry, my version of this is who cares what Elio Kipchoge wore on his feet? You're not a 105 pound Kenyan. Right. So let's, we made, the, we made the, the point that it is possible to produce an environment which is, different, right? To improve, yeah, to improve uh, performance. So 
with this company we will refer to as Nike in this discussion. <laughs> Just because, because it's easier. It's the shortest name we could think of. Right. What I want you guys to think about is they basically built a spring, okay? They talk about the foam, the foam, the foam. The foam is not the key ingredient here. What you've done is you built a sandwich construction using, yes, foam and also some carbon plates to produce a, what? A, a certain amount of displacement and rise, right? And that displacement, once it reaches a, a high amount, which is in that nine millimeter category or so, this is from work by Thomas from a long time ago, you actually look at the point where you may be actually influencing elasticity, okay? Right. And so this shoe was tuned for a certain very narrow window of body mass and a narrow window of ground contact times and may in fact have a, an influence on how that oscillation center mass rise and falls and may have some improvement on you know some aspect of elasticity for those runners. If you go buy the Nike 4% shoe and you're a 185 pound runner, it will not help you. Okay. At some point, companies might, if this is not deemed illegal, even though IAAF says springs and shoes are in fact illegal. Okay. Right. That's a fact, by the way, that's not an opinion. You look at the rule book, right? So, you know, again, now we get a bunch of lawyers in the room. They have to determine what makes a spring. Is it a coil? Is it two materials that allow storage? I'm not going to get bogged down in that, but so. Is it possible to improve performance through a elastic, a filter? That's what I call shoes, right? Shooter filters. Yeah. Is it possible to improve that? Yes, it is. Does that directly translate over second per second all the time? No. I mean, you have to look at, again, control conditions, right? I'm on a constant surface material, a, a, you know, that treadmill for the study, right? I'm on a, I have a certain body weight, a certain speed, certain ground contact time. We can produce things in control conditions. Right. So what Nike's publicity stunt was to have people in very controlled conditions, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, again, we're variable. You're not the same person. Um, we have to find out what's the limit when we're allowing motors and shoes and when we're allowing the body to be optimally prepared. Well, there, there are another, another couple of points that I want to bring up and see what you think of. So one is, um, you know, people ask me not infrequently, well, uh, what do you think about the shoe? Because all these people are setting personal bests in it. And my response is people are continuing to set personal bests in other shoes as well. So, so that's part one. Part two is um, we know that for most runners, the, the limiting factor is not their body, but their brain. There's this central governor, basically. And if you put on a shoe that you expect is going to make you faster, it's entirely possible that one of the things you're going to do is push through limits that you currently that your brain currently said, stop. You're going to go, ooh, that's just the beginning of this, and you're going to keep going. So there's a massive placebo effect involved as well. Um, and then the, the simplest one is anything that's going to be a spring, you'd be able to see this in the force plate data. You would see a change in what the force curve looks like. Basically, especially if it's a spring, you'd see that the end of the, the, of the force curve when you're you know, just past mid-stance would be abbreviated because it would be pushing you off the ground. I, don't, I haven't seen any force plate data, and I don't expect that if we looked at any, it would actually show that. That's my hunch. Yeah, it's, um, so it's interesting. Um, when you look at, you might see in some aspects, you might not see it in others because what, what tends to be, it's, it's sort of disguised within the, in the peak. I mean, again, if you basically said, okay, let's have a field day and start to pick apart these things and, and yeah. design experiments to look at the elastic component it, it, within running and kind of tease these out, you, you could produce some nice experiments, right? I mean, I just, let, let's make the, the, the final nail on this is, I, I want you as consumers to think about, you know, what are we doing, right? We're changing, you know, this study, okay, which was funded, um, this performance stunt you saw was very biased for a positive outcome, right, within right. control conditions. And so, um, you know, well, I, I oh, sorry for interrupting, which by the way, and I'm not saying this did or didn't happen, I don't know, but it is interesting that we, that Nike, at the same time they're doing this, is busted up the yin yang for drug issues, and we have no idea they wouldn't let uh, Elliot get tested. So, who knows? Yeah. There's that too, right? So, um, yeah, there's lots of ethical things happening for that company right now. But um, let, let, let's just keep it at, uh, you know, if you want to understand the science behind this, there's more work to do. Um, I would say that you look at what's been proven over the years. Um, shoes do make a difference, right? But let, let's talk about this. Shoes make a difference on a micro scale, okay? I think you as an athlete, when you train, you make a difference on a macro scale, okay? Right. Whether this is conditioning, whether it's stability work, whether, you know, whatever, right? I mean, uh, you know, for example, in, in full disclosure, I do uh, validation innovation work for a number of different brands in my lab. Okay. So, you know, if we see a change of, you know, four to 5% in like, you know, let's talk about, you know, stability. I'm not talking about shoe stability. We're talking about yeah. how the shoe influences the runner, right? We're pretty excited. We're like, wow, just by changing the construction, we improve the way the runner, right? The way the athlete stabilizes their body. That's a positive finding. 
Yet I can have you come in, do some baseline testing and do some you know, stability work with you. And I found you've improved your stability by 30, 40%. Okay. That's a huge change, improving your ability to be durable over time. Right. So that all comes down to improving again. What is my control of my body? Well, Glenn Mills, who's Usain Bolt's coach, said what got him to become, go from a 400-meter runner to a 100-meter runner was a year worth of stability work, a year worth of yeah. core work. Yeah. And, and so again, like, we, we want to think, you know, running is basically storing and releasing energy through all these slings in our body. And so we want to basically control those end of the slings. Um, analogy is all the time is if you take a spring, right, and you pull it on one side and you store energy in it and you release it, it gives back, right? So we have a controlled storage release. If we take a spring and expand both sides and let go, it's like, uncontrolled right. you know, uncontrolled wow. torsion so we have to do something to improve the way we transfer that that strategy through our body uh and, and that's why all this stuff on stability and strengthening and proving the skill of rate of force development right is directly right. correlated with running economy you know um you know research when you look at how to become faster you need to improve the rate of force development of your body as an athlete so I'll decode that real quick. It's not making you, quote, stronger, right? If I say lift this heavy barbell, Steve, yeah. it takes you about half a second to lift the barbell, right? When you're running, your stance times aren't half a second. They're a right. quarter second, you know, 0.1 second, 0.15 second, whatever. So you have to learn to become more skilled, right, at recruiting your strength faster. I, by and the that way, happens. I resent the implication that my ground contact time is longer than Usain Bolt's. <laughs> I'm just guessing. He wasn't pointing fingers. <laughs> just, just because saying. I'm 57 and, you know, I mean, come on. I, I, that's just really, really it's, it's ageist. Yeah. You're, you're age shaming me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so it, you know, it all comes down to can we do some things to improve that, that, that stiffness of the system, right, from yeah. the neurologic level? Can we do things to improve uh, the rate of force development? Oh, yeah. We well, no, no. And, and what's, of course, so amazing about this is the first, the first point of contact, the first place where you want that stiffness is going to be your foot. And the thing that these shoes are doing is eliminating the possibility that you can generate that kind of stiffness. Right. Totally. I mean, when you, when you put your foot on these overly compliant foams, you, you lose a lot of ground feel. Okay. So right. uh, analogy I always use for folks is it easier to tie your shoes in bare hands or with winter gloves on, Right. right. If you can't feel what you're doing, we tend to see things become unstable, right? And so right. when you put in your foot in soft compliant surfaces, we tend to see most people shift their entire body, not just their foot and neck control, but they shift their entire body more side to side, right? And so we tend to see that decrease, not foot stability, everything stability, right? right? So you, know, you want to run in a safe, stable environment, which means I feel the ground. I know what I'm doing. I just thought of something really funny. So one of the products that we sell on our site is uh, from my friend, Jim Klopman. It's called the Slack Block. And basically it's a piece of foam. It's about, I don't know, maybe four inches high with a wooden plank on it so you can stand on it. And it's designed to be unstable so that you have to learn to balance. The joke is it's only about twice as thick as maximalist running shoes. And this whole thing is designed to, I mean, you can't be stable on it. It's literally impossible. Yeah. And, you know, and if you get rid of half of that, it doesn't make it a whole lot better. Yeah, and so, yeah, you, you want to have your foot in the best environment to learn, right? And so, yeah, if we, I guess we need a little segue. One of the things I've tried to do in my career is to say, what's the best environment to learn stability in, right? So, right. you know, if you look at a lot of you, if you probably walked in a PT clinic or some point in time and said, okay, let's go ahead and have you stand on one of those soft, squishy Eric's pads, right? right? And so what you've done is tell your athlete, it's okay to just roll off the outside of your foot and, quote, balance in space versus learning proactive control, right? So not only do soft, squishy surfaces not improve stability, there's good research to show that we don't see carryover in terms of time spent training in soft surfaces and improvement in sport. They tend to impair what we call the shortening cycle for our tendons, which again, is, is not helping improve that rate of force development, okay? It's not a good environment to learn from. And when you look at how we treat vestibular patients, we want to improve vestibular patients that have inner ear problems, we right. want to improve reliance on inner ear and vision to help with balance control and take away information from the feet so they learn to use vision and inner ear better, right? So by putting on that soft, squishy surface, we're actually taking away sensory feedback. Right. We're taking away proprioception. We've done this for decades. Why would you train somebody that way for sport? I wrote something yesterday to make a long story very short. We've had a number of patients who've described how wearing our shoes has been helpful for them for balancing and just you know feeling more stable on the ground. And the thing that's interesting is that the people that I'm referring to are deaf. Yep. And, I, and as soon as they said it, it was like, oh my God, of course. 
just the whole thing of, of how your feet are connected to your vestibular system and what's going on with your ears and what kind of deafness you may have. I mean, this is something that I don't think anyone has even thought to explore yet. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. It's and really it, yeah. interesting. Yeah. So the, the best environment to train in, right, is one where you feel the ground. So it's best to train on hard, hard surfaces. firm surfaces. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and, and those hard surfaces can be ground or they can also be something that tends to be a little wobbly. Like rocker boards are mm. great training environments because again, they're hard. So your nervous system gets constant feedback on where am I in space, right? right. And so one of the things I've done is develop a little product called Mobo, right? And plug, so, plug, yeah. plug, plug. Now look, before <laughs> you even say it, so this, yep. this thing that you're going to describe, I, I'm just going to, I'll preempt your plug by saying, yep. so I spend most of my time in the office barefoot and as do, actually, I'm, there's one or two people in the office who do that. Most people are working around in our shoes. But because of that, I've got this product that you're about to talk about in my office. And every time I walk by, I use it and it's awesome. Okay. Now that I've done the pre-plug plug, tell people <laughs> what the hell it is. And by the way, I feel this is really not okay that we're going to tell people about it before I can point them to my website to buy it, but that's okay. We'll point them to you. I'll give, I'll give you that. <laughs> so yeah, see, thanks for the intro. You know, so what I've been trying to do in my years is give people tools, right? So I wrote Running Rewired, Anatomy for Runners, give people tools on how to understand, how to take actual steps to improve. And one of the things I found is, again, when you talk about the feet, people get kind of this blank stare of what do I do? You tr tried that little foot torsion test we did earlier today, and some people are like, oh, that's, that's really hard for me. Well, I want to help you get in and find your big toe. I want to teach you to control your foot through a normal amount of pronation and supination that occurs as we run, cut, and jump, right? So I developed this product called Mobo, which is basically it's a modified rocker board that gives you contact where we want you to have it on your big toe to drive down and doesn't give you contact for little toes to grip and curl, right? In so, other words, there's a giant hole that you put everything but your big toe in so your little toes can't do anything other than hold onto the board at best. Right. And so it forces you to shift load over to muscles that drive down, right? When we drive the big toe down for stability, we improve 3D control, 3D steering of our arch, okay? And when you improve your arch connection to the ground, then you learn to start using your feet. So you can use the word forces, or you can use the word nicer word cues, but, but Mobo is designed to cue muscles in your feet to wake up and do a job, right? And so it allows you to train things in isolation. You can do things that are just for foot, right? But again, we don't treat just feet, we treat bodies. And so we really try and do a good job of cueing the foot to work with the hip, with the core, with your shoulder position, right? To train better position awareness. And so, yeah, it was designed to be an actionable tool you can use to make you better. So we'll do this at the end of the episode as well, but since you already brought it up, you may as well tell people where they can find out more. <laughs> yeah, so if you check out moboboard.com, it's M-O-B-O-Board.com. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram at, at mobo.board. Uh, and so, yeah, we're trying to put tools and information out just like you are, Steve, to, you know, again, improve this discussion on how do I train my body to become a better, you know, better athlete, right? How can I unleash my inner, inner talents? It's not just training your core, right? It's training yeah. all aspects of your body. Your feet are part of this. So um, you've, you kind of alluded to it, but I feel um, morally required to ask you what your um, specific take is on um, the minimalist footwear. Let's call it, I'm going to pose this in a different way. People love to say to me when I bring up when I tell people what I do and actually the way I describe what I do when people ask, I say, so do your feet feel better at the end of the day? Than they do at the beginning of the day and nobody says yes. And I go, well, that's because your shoes aren't letting your feet do what's natural. Your feet are fighting and it makes them really exhausted. So your feet are supposed to bend and flex and move and feel and shoes don't let you do that. We make shoes that are so lightweight and built around the foot and so comfortable that we've literally had people go to bed still wearing them because they forgot they had them on, not because they were drunk and passed out. And most people then just go, oh my gosh, I want to find out more. But some people will say, well, isn't there a whole debate about this whole thing? Now I have an answer to that. I'm dying to hear what yours is when people say that. Yeah, I, I, I was this again. You've been you've been scammed for marketing for years, but you know, being told that you know this is the perfect shoe, right? That this is going to be better and building up more material. Let's just go with what's played out, right? We had the Anciana Tiger come out, you know, decades and decades ago, which was a minimal shoe, right? right. And so it was designed for runners who are doing things like running, right, which requires your body to show up ready to go, right. And then I'm just going to be blunt, and I don't mean to be rude, but we had shoes get what I call Americanized, right? More people thought starting to run would be a good idea, and so we had people who were relatively deconditioned, and marketing companies said, hey, one way we can get people in the running is by making things that feel soft and cuddly, so they started putting more cushioning in shoes, right? And so then we had, you know, 
problems with you know people who were relatively deconditioned starting to put a bunch of load in their bodies and they started to get hurt. So companies came in and said, oh, you know, a shoe designer who I know great shoe designers. They're not anatomists. They're not physiologists. They're not therapists. They're not you know they don't understand anatomy. They just make things that look cool. They went in this entire direction of quote stopping the foot from moving right with these posts. And I can tell you concretely, the posts do not stop foot motion. Your foot is most collapsed or pronated, or, or I use the word deformed at the arch after the heels come up off the ground. So if you're oh, somebody, yeah. if you're somebody who thinks that that post is stopping your foot from moving. It's not touching the, the floor, okay? So, you know, not only do posts not work, but they're, 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 yeah, it just, they actually can cause harm in terms of knee torques and a bunch of other things we published over, over our career. So, you know, you saw shoes evolve from nothing and they just, they, they went out of control, right? And they, the pendulum swung really far, okay? And so we had a bunch of people who became relatively deconditioned with their feet and they were in a, what I call a codependent relationship with their footwear, right? They required the, the shoe to you know, show up and do something for them. And then, you know, what happens? Shoes break down, cushioning you know, degrades. When cushioning degrades, it doesn't just flatten out uniformly. It tends to shift and wobble. And so we've got more pressure under second through fifth toes, which are good at gripping, and less pressure under first ray, which is to drive down. So the environment your foot's in is not optimal, right? So then years ago, we had the barefoot folks come through and say, everyone must be bare feet all the time, right? And so what you saw was a big pushback. And the, what's on the running retail wall today is categorically 180 degrees different than what was on the wall 10 years ago, right? So right. you see, you know, for those of you who say, oh, barefoot stupid, minimal stupid, everything's changed, right? Everything's changed. Everything's not a minimal shoe, but we've taken a lot of material out, right? We've learned to try to get some more aspects of, of trying to get the foot to work from a, a hierarchy. You now has implemented, it still has lots of work to do. But I think putting less underfoot is better, right? Uh, let, me, let me share a quick story. We, we did a, a research study years ago for a company who wanted to look at making a better hiking shoe, right? And so one of the things hiking shoes have been built on for years is that you have to have a very stiff shoe, okay? Uh, the people at REI are literally taught to take hiking shoes on the wall and tell customers, take the shoe off the wall. If you can twist it, it's a it's bad, bad shoe. Wait, I'm going to interrupt you right there. Yeah. So this shoe that's in my hand right now, this is our Daylight Hiker EV. This shoe went on an REI trip up Kilimanjaro. There's, I think, seven people on the trip. One of them was an REI rep. Everyone else was ripping off their shoes at the end of the day. Their feet were, you know, killing them. Their toenails were coming off the whole thing. The guy who was wearing these, he said, I literally, you know, had to take them off just to get in my sleeping bag. That's, that's really about it. It was totally, totally fine. The REI rep from that on that event came back saying, oh my God, we have totally got to get this shoe. It performed better than all these five, $600 shoes that people had on their feet. Everyone's feet and, you know, the guy's feet were better than everybody else's. I mean, we've got to get this. The hiking buyer says, eh, I don't believe it. Yeah. So, that, so, here, so you just on the problem, right? So we made it, we, we made a prototype hiking boot for this company that was designed to have a lot of torsion within it, right? Because right. guess what? Your foot has to move. Okay. Yeah. I'll tell you a secret. Your foot actually changes alignment between your forefoot and rear foot before your foot contacts the ground. Okay. Oh, and interesting. It does so, yeah. So your feet actually are proactive, right? So we look at stiffer feet tend to keep their forefoot and rear foot in plane. Feet with more motion available tend to have more splay between their rear foot and forefoot before the foot's in the ground. So if your shoe is too stiff, you're not allowing that natural proprioceptive effect to occur, right? You're muting that. So we made a shoe which had much more torsion in it, okay, from a passive design, okay? So, and hold so on, like, wait, hold on, hold on. You mean yeah. you like that? Yeah, like that. Well, not even that much, right? Like nowhere near that much, but it moves, right? And so yeah. what we found was one of the tests the research community likes to use is something we call the Dynamic Postural Stability Index. And so what you do is you stand on two feet, you put a 12 by 12 box in front of you, and you jump over the box, you land on one foot, and we measure the front to back, up and down, side to side oscillation of your body wobble, and also the time integer required to stabilize. So I'm looking at how well and how rapidly do you stabilize your own body, okay? So not what does a shoe do, but how yeah, do yeah. you yourself, right? So what we found is that when we put people in all hiking shoes, which are like, you know, again, stiff rated structures, they all kind of tested over here, right? They were all together uniformly. And then this more torsionally mobile hiking boot was like categorically different. It stood out right. by itself. And for fun, I said, hey, let's put a minimal running shoe in, right? And that tested even further over to the left, right? So right. and left was better. So the idea is why would you want to land in a lever? Okay. You want to land in something right. that can, can move with you, right? So here's what happened. We were pumped. The shoe company was pumped. They put the shoe out. But the problem is when it came down for the customer to go shopping, the person at the store is trained 
you have to have a stiff shoe. We had, we had a meeting at, I'm not going to mention their name because I don't want to embarrass them too much. Sure. Company that sells a lot of big, thick, stiff, padded, motion-controlled hiking boots. And I, I, there's a, this is going to sound like a tangent. There's a, a guy, he's a former FBI hostage negotiator named Chris Voss, who, because of his son, Brandon, who I, he went to business school, I think, Brandon said, you know, everything you're doing as an FBI hostage negotiator works negotiating in business as well. And he's written a book called Never Split the Difference, which comes from the idea that, you know, if I'm negotiating to get four hostages released, it isn't okay if I only get two of them. So anyway, (laughs) when I was talking to this company about the shoe that I just showed you, our hiking boot that's super, super flexible, I was arguing with the buyer about that. And the argument didn't work. They didn't buy any of our shoes. In fact, he stood up kind of in a huff and said, look, I'm going to stop even saying things because you have an answer for everything that I say. And I said, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your butt. It's like, I know the answers to the questions you're bringing up. But what I really should have done, I now learned from Chris Voss, is I should have just mirrored back what he was reporting me, which was, I get it. You're worried that your salespeople aren't going to know what to do when there's one shoe on the wall that is the exact opposite of everything else they've been telling people is important. Mm-hmm. And if I had said that, he would have said, yeah, right. Because I was basically just repeating what he had said a little more succinctly. And then my next question would have been, well, how do you recommend, I mean, you know your people better than I do. How do you recommend we solve this and let him try to solve the problem? Because it's, it, it's doable. I mean, I, you know, I, I obviously think all of those shoes should be thrown away. But in, until that happens, like at the American College of Sports Medicine, this panel discussion I was on a year and a half ago, at one point I made the comment that, and Irene Davis kind of made it as well, that minimalist shoes are going to be the better option. And a guy from Adidas said, yeah, but not everyone's going to switch to your shoes right away. And I'm thinking, yeah, he's right. He's also just told me that I've got a half a billion dollar runway before they freak out. But regardless, you know, it's true. It's not going to happen right away. So what is the transition process when, like you said, the people in the stores are trained, have been trained for 50 years now to say a specific thing that's categorically incorrect, how do you get them to bring this into the conversation so that they can, that they can facilitate making this transition without losing face, basically, without having to say, oh my God, we had our head up our asses for the last 50 years. Yeah, and I think it comes down to better education, right? And, and so here, here's the thing we go back to, right? It's like the best, let's just call a spade a spade. The best-selling running shoe for the past number of years has been the Brooks Adrenaline, right? So right. It's, a, it's a, quote, stability shoe. And so retailers are still in that mindset of, my retailers told me all of my shoe knowledge comes from retailers telling me I have to have stability, cushion, motion control footwear, right? right. So when somebody comes in the door, and when they, you know, when they tell me, oh, I've got some problems with instability, the only t- tool that retailer has, and, and, and those are good people, right? But the only thing they've been trained right. in is, let it's me stop the foot from moving. And so I'm just going to put this out there. Brooks has known for a long time that stability posts don't work. But right. they've, up until this year, they've had a post in there because the retailers demand one, right? They, they, I need a two-tone piece of gray material to, to tell me whether the shoe comes off the wall or not for this customer. Right. And so that's how your training plan has been, right? If you told me that everyone must do something always all the time, that's all I know how to do, that's all I know how to do, right? So you know, a lot of this comes down to, you know, from the retail level, how do I educate my resellers in what is real, right? And not, is not just been marketed as real. I have a funny, so, answer. I have a funny answer for that. And because I don't think education, I'll say this in a weird way. I don't think education is the answer. And I'll, I'm going to come back to this in a second. I think the answer is just trying to get as many of those people who are selling shoes on the floor to just try on something like what we're doing. Because once they have the experience of it, there's no information that has any, that's going to supersede that. And this goes back to my first thing about why I don't think education is the answer. We know from cognitive, well, from psychology studies, that if you believe something and I come at you with a contradictory belief, the odds are really, really high, like over 90%, that your response is going to be to believe what you started out even more to find you know, some ridiculous way of disproving what I just told you. I said to Irene Davis, you know, when you do your presentation about why regular shoes cause problems and a truly minimalist shoe cures those, people should come tackle me and steal everything that I have. But they don't because they think they made a rational decision to wear the thing that they're wearing, even though it was just influenced mostly by the guy at the shoe store, like you said. And you can't talk people out of their seemingly rational decision with more data. So I'm actually trying to make an end run around quote education because we're otherwise we're, we're just fighting with people's neurology, <laughs> which is um, highly unlikely to be effective. But when, again, when someone puts on, 
like that hiking shoe and takes a walk and feels the ground and notices that they don't actually need ankle support or any of those things they were told, they can't argue with their experience. In fact, it's my favorite thing when someone comes in and tries on a shoe and they walk around and their eyes light up and they go, oh my God, these are great. Hey, wait, but don't I need arch support? And I say, well, I don't know. How did it feel just now? Well, felt great. Well, then apparently you don't. Yeah. Now, there's definitely, I mean, some of that in there. I mean, it's like, I was, you know, the art support idea, the fact the shoe has to be snug and tight. I mean, it's like, I wish we would just get away from this idea. Like, you know, we have images. I put some out, other folks put them out. When you stand up, right, barefoot, your foot splays. And when you right. put a shoe on, your foot needs to splay. And a lot of us are in too narrow footwear. It doesn't let our foot splay properly, right? So right. even that alone is something we know, but like, People still have the idea. I need a snug, you know, sock fitting like shoe. Well, and there's, so- there's another one that they that they believe that I find really interesting. They believe they need a certain amount of space, typically like a half an inch in front of their toes. Right. And what they don't realize is the reason that they think that is because when you have a shoe with a midsole and you, and it bends, it bends like a phone booth. The fat inside moves faster than the outside, so the shoe effectively shortens while you're going through the gate. But if you don't have that big thick midsole, that doesn't happen. And then you can right. get something that actually fits your damn foot. Right. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, there's expectations. Again, most runners, what do they do? Oh, I ran one time in this shoe. I'll buy 12 pairs of them. Right. And then I have in my garage and right. I never try anything else. So right. yeah, I mean, we, we have a broken marketing problem, fit education process, selection you know, issue with, with shoes. And I think people need to try more different stuff. You know, again, your brain learns by being in better environments and it requires mm-hmm. to be in different environments often. Right. And so um, again, we said before, What's the best environment in which to learn it? Well, you want to you know, find an environment and use those parts appropriately, right? So right. we're trying to build better awareness and control around what the foot does. I think you have, I basically have the same message. I want to help you work better, not worse, yeah. right? Yeah. So here's some tools to do that, from footwear to you know, re-education tools for your foot from Mobo and, and just you know, reading things and articles I put out there, but like trying to understand the point that we want to improve all of you, not just your core. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. I mean, the you know, look, when I started, when Lane and I started Zero Shoes almost 10 years ago to the day, we're nine days away or so. And when I started, it was just from my own experience of getting out of big, thick padded shoes and into basically nothing. And then into just, you know, four millimeters of rubber to give myself a little protection and make sure I could get into restaurants without having to argue. But, you know, it took me very little time to start seeing the broader repercussions of not using your feet naturally and what that does. And the flip side, the, the advantages and the, and the very rapid changes that you can experience when you start doing it. But it's continued to evolve. I mean, I've you know, learned more and more over the time. And I, I, did a, I did a podcast conversation with Sarah Ridge and, and her partner, Wayne. I just blanked on Wayne's last name, Anderson or Johnson, whichever it is, one of those. And I was saying, I titled that podcast something like the stupidest natural movement research ever done. And I said, it's amazing that we have to do research to prove things like if you use your feet, it's better than not using your feet. It's, you know, it's stupid that we have to do that when the big shoe companies have no, nothing backing up pretty much anything they've said. And on the one hand, it couldn't be more self-evident. On the other hand, it's simultaneously, we, you know, we have to do more and more so that when people have the experience, you can give them, this is when the education comes in, you give them something to back up their experience to justify the experience. So they understand the experience. And then it's like, from my experience, then it's locked in because now they've had the personal experience as well as the information that makes it understandable. Yeah. I, I, I kind of finish with a, a quote from a friend of mine, Brad DeWeese, who's a, a, a performance researcher from U.S. Olympic Committee. And so, you know, what Brad talks about is, as an athlete, think about your season, right? You, what happens is you go in, you have a race in your calendar you're preparing for. And so you say, okay, I'm doing some training and you get a result. So maybe you took 10 seconds off your 5K, right? And you think, oh, well, great, right? So we as a society think, okay, I started the season, I did some stuff, and I had a result of 10 seconds off. Right. Awesome. Okay. Well, okay. Great job. I mean, good work. Right. But like, you know what, what did you do in that black box to take off 10 seconds? Maybe you could have taken off a minute. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like we think like, Oh, well, this person got better. Okay. Well let's question that process. Right. Could you've gotten better? Let's break better down. What does better mean? Where are you now? Okay. Yeah. What does your sport require? How do you understand that sport? How do you break those components down in terms of how did I prepare my body for my sport, right? Did I really do everything I need to do? I know people are busy. I know people just want to go out there and run, but you know what? Like, can we make sure that your training program is comprehensive, right? You want to succeed. I want you to succeed. You're coming to me for advice and support on how to build a better you, right? So it's not just running. I always tell people, all runners out there would be better served taking a day off of running and doing some dynamic control work, right? So, and that, and something like, oh, really? I have to, I have to take a whole workout? 
I'll make that statement. But you know what? If, if, if you're the kind of person who wants to get everything done in one day at a slot, then do that. If you're the kind of person who says, you know what? I'll shorten my run by half a mile, okay, and do some dynamic activation stuff before I run, do that, right? But you have, you have to accept responsibility, okay, for your own body. You know, you're doing things or not doing things to make sure you're durable and healthy and consistent over time. And that requires you to be prepared. And so, you know, the sooner we can have a discussion on how to give people tools to do that, and footwear is part of this, right? You know, yeah. spending time with the right education, this is all part of building a better athlete, right? And so, you know, I have never met an athlete that I work with who doesn't do this stuff. People think, right. oh, they're elite. They, you know, all of the elites I work with do tons, tons of work. The, the ski team work with some athletes in the U.S. ski team. People think, oh, what do you do? You get to the hill, you put your boots on, you go ski. Two of my athletes do an hour and a half of dynamic warm-up drills every single day before their ski boots go on right every day right and so you as a listener i want you to think about this the best and the best in the world are doing lots of things to prepare themselves to perform at a very high level right and grant they've got time but you need to do something to prepare yourself to perform at your optimal level I think you just nailed it though. I think for many people, just the fact that they're putting on their shoes and getting out the door is like all the CPU cycles they have, yeah. and so, which is why I also say like take a day and you know, wean yourself off on that day and do some, some conditioning work. But even that, it's like, it's this fascinating thing about how we get into grooves and how much brain power we literally do or don't have to make new kinds of decisions. So to snap someone out of a running five days a week program into running four days a week and spending one day a week you know, doing some sort of strengthening, for example, it, it's like that's a Herculean task to get them out of that groove and into a new groove. And once they do, though, of course, they'll see the benefits of it, and then they're going to be looking for more. So my background as an undergrad, I was doing research on cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition. So I was always a cog psych guy. And the thing that I just find really interesting, in addition to everything you're saying, we've got to build a whole body, build a whole athlete at whatever level. I'm really curious about the cognitive and psychological aspects. And I don't mean sports psychology, which I think is predominantly bullshit. In fact, there's a friend of mine. I don't know if you've met him. There's a, a good friend of mine. He's a, a world champion cross country runner, masters runner. And we became friends in large part because one day, We'd been training, we had the same coach, and he just said, wow, I just set a personal best in the 1500, and uh, I didn't think I was even going to come out to the track today because I felt so bad. I said, have you ever had other days where you felt like crap and you set a personal best? He goes, yeah. I said, have you ever had days where you felt great and you just couldn't get out of the blocks? He went, yeah. I said, well, then we just proved that sports psychology is bullshit. And he goes, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and or I, I actually did this with an Olympian, a very well-known Olympian. Someone asked this person, you know, how do you get into flow? And they had this whole story about getting into flow. And I said, do you ever feel like you were in flow and you got crushed? And they went, yeah. I said, do you ever feel like, you know, I can't believe I'm running this race and you just beat everyone? And they went, yeah. I said, well, again, there goes the sports psychology part. It just so happened you were the best marathoner in the world at that time. When I was an All-American gymnast in high school, I didn't have to psych myself up other than to try and do as well as I could. Nobody was going to beat me that year because I was just that much better. And it's not personal. It's just, you know just the way it was. So I didn't need to do anything other than, you know, have my ritual spaghetti the night before. And, and even in high school, I knew that that was a ritual. I knew that it had no real bearing on anything. Sure. I really enjoyed the ritual of it. Yeah. I found that very pleasant. So I, I, this is like the next thing that I want to start to explore with people is let's see if we can also just totally strip apart all of the mythology and propaganda and extraneous crap around the psychological component too. Yeah, I think it goes back to you know, how do you prepare yourself to be the best athlete you can be on a day of competition, right? And so, yeah, that's what we're trying to do. I love it. Dude, if human beings want to find out more about everything you've done, obviously we're going to link to the book. Do you, I'm assuming you're, you've got the book on your website, right? Book is on Amazon. It's on there. What the um, hell? You're not selling it yourself? You know, man, it's publishing industry. No, it's tough. So yeah. All right. Well, we'll yeah. then we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll link to it. We'll link to the books that way. But how else can people find you and the things that you've been talking about and the things that you can do to help other humans? Yeah. So they can find us at moboboard.com. You can find us on Instagram on mobo.board. Uh, you can find my, my research lab, rep. Oregon, R-E-P, Oregon.com is uh, our performance facility. If you wanted to get uh, advice and tips on uh, some stuff to improve you as an athlete and uh, yeah, get out there and have fun. 
that. <laughs> I love that you said that because we have to hear how I end this. Well, then let me end it. So first of all, Jay, thank you very much. Totally a pleasure. I mean, for as often as we you know pass each other in the night, as it were, this is the first time we've gotten to sit down and do this. And it was a, the pleasure I expected it would be. And we will definitely do more. Are you going to be at the running event coming up soon? I will be there soon. Right, yeah. I'll see you there and you're going to see some of our new things you're going to like. Here, wait, hold on. Here's the hint. They're up on the wall up there. Nice. Okay. Solid. So anyway, thank you all for joining us. If you want to be part of this community of people who are trying to make natural movement, the obvious, better, healthy choice, the way natural food is, and get your entire body to work better, starting with your feet first, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You can leave comments on this and other episodes. You can listen to the other episodes. You can find out all the different ways. You can find this content on YouTube and on iTunes and on Spotify and everywhere else that podcasts are shared. Leave reviews, leave comments. If you have a suggestion for somebody you think should be on the show, drop an email to me at move at jointhemovementmovement.com. But most importantly, go out, have fun, and live life feet first. You've been listening to the Movement Movement Podcast with host Stephen Sashin. Remember to join the tribe and subscribe at jointhemovementmovement.com.